Hi, everyone. Welcome to Merch Money. Today, we are so excited. We have Philip Van Dusen with us. And um, I was just telling him and telling Christina, I'm a little nervous because we have a, a crazy thunderstorm going on right now. So, um, oh, hold on. I have the background. Can you guys hear that? Okay, there we go. Um, so we'll see. We'll see if the power lasts and if, if we can pull this off, but we're definitely going to try. Um, so thank you so much, Philip, for being here. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me, Helen. I appreciate it. Yeah. So for anyone that doesn't know, um, I'm sure a lot of you do because I've been posting the videos all week. <laughs> Philip, we've been posting a video every day. So, um, so guys, if you're watching, please post yes in the comments if you have watched one of Philip's videos this week. <laughs> I think hopefully we'll have a lot of people saying yes. Um, Nathan is saying he's so excited for the show tonight. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know, Philip was a VP of design at Old Navy and at PepsiCo, and he's had this whole extensive career. So we're going to talk about that and just get another perspective, because a lot of us come from just the e-commerce e world, and we don't necessarily know as much about how, how designers go about creating t-shirt designs and how they do the research and um, how retail in general works. So anyway, thank you so much, Philip. And um, let's just start with a little background about yourself. Sure. Well, I was I was trained as a fine artist, actually. I have my master's degree in painting. And uh, my original intention was to be a teacher. So after I got my master's, I looked for teaching work unsuccessfully for a number of years. It was very difficult at that period of time to find teaching work. I eventually found a job um, teaching in the south of France at part of the Cleveland um, Art Institute's um, school in Lacoste, France. And so it was a short, you know, one semester um, engagement. And I went there and I taught drawing, but I did a lot of printmaking while I was there, did a lot of monotypes. And when I came back to the United States, I was living in Philly at the time and I decided to move to New York City. And when I did that, I thought, I'm going to start doing t-shirts and I want to start putting some of my artwork on t-shirts because I thought, you know, I had been selling work in galleries in Philadelphia, but I wanted to sell kind of more of my work. So I started a t-shirt company of my own um, and I put a lot of my monotypes, very fine art, not very um, populist looking designs, you <laughs> say that way, more art designs. And um, I took my little sample case and I walked the entire island of Manhattan. This is pre-internet, so that totally dates me. Wow. Um, and what tried to went into every single card shop and clothing store and boutique that would have me and tried to sell my shirts to them. And, you know, so I was doing all my own, um, you know, buying volume, doing production, holding the, the uh, inventory while I went out to sell it. I also did a lot of street fairs. Um, and I really realized that I loved uh, doing design for apparel. And uh, I ran that uh, company for about a year. And then I was approached by a guy who was one of my competitors and who had seen me a lot of uh, street fairs. And he asked me if I would come and be a designer in his company. And he had like a $5 million graphic t-shirt company um, with headquarters down in Dumbo, Brooklyn, down under the, Manhattan, the uh, Manhattan Bridge. And this was before Dumbo was gentrified and before it had a West Elm and before it had electricity almost. And um, so went down there and I was a graphic designer for his company for about four or five years and moved very quickly from graphic designer to art director to creative director. And I realized at that point that doing um, managing designers and doing, um, uh, you know, running a studio was a lot like teaching, except you made a whole lot more money and you weren't out of work every nine months. So and you also got to see your work walking around on people's chests all the time. So it was just I, I took to it like a duck to water, absolutely loved it. And uh, this is when the, the Macintosh was coming out and just becoming a tool that you could actually really use for graphics. And so. I started learning the computer and absolutely loved that. I would go home and read, you know, back in the day, remember those like 500 page manuals for Photoshop and Illustrator that they used to have. You guys are too young, but they did. They have like huge books, manuals. Yeah. I used to read those like cover to cover. Um, and 
so I worked in the t-shirt industry in that company for a while. I eventually took another creative director job at a licensing company that did a lot of licensing for Warner Brothers and Disney and um, CLC colleges and NBA and um, NBA and ABA um, and uh, selling t-shirts to stores like Macy's and Walgreens and uh, all the major retailers. And I was there for about a year and then I got headhunted away by Old Navy and went into Old Navy as a uh, graphic design, graphic designer. Yeah. And was promoted to senior designer and then manager within a year. Um, and I, I'll return to my whole Old Navy story, but I was there for about 11 years. And by the time I left, I was a VP of uh, graphic design, color packaging trend and, uh, and CAD textiles. So I had about 65 people um, on my team. And uh, after I left Old Navy, I went over to the agency side. So I worked on a couple with a couple different global um, branding agencies doing brand strategy and brand identity for, you know, a, a host of the Fortune 100, everyone from Coca-Cola to Pepsi to Chevron to Safeway to um, PetSmart. Um, Johnson and Johnson, the list goes on. So huge number of big clients in that period of my career. And then after about eight years on the agency side, I went back to the corporate side. I was headhunted away by uh, PepsiCo and became the vice president of uh, Global Snacks for PepsiCo. So I was overseeing Lay's potato chips and Doritos and Tostitos and Fritos and all those amazing good for you snacks that I love. <laughs> but are good only, only in moderation. Um, and uh, that was that was really, really great. I really enjoyed that. And um, that gave me the opportunity to come back and uh, move back to New York City. I had moved to San Francisco with Old Navy. And um, I was with PepsiCo for a period of time. And then I decided to go out on my own. I'd had a 25-year run on the corporate agency side and just decided I wanted to do my own thing. So I walked away from this giant role at PepsiCo and started my own, um, my own agency. It's a, it's a consultancy, essentially the virtual agency model I'm the principal. And I have a host of other very senior level partners that I bring in to work, whatever projects that I bring in. Um, so they white label their services under me, we work project and then we go our own separate ways. And so that's kind of how my model works. It's very, it's where the branding agency freelance industry is moving and a lot of industries are actually um lot less kind of full-time workers out there right. supposedly you know it's going to be half of the workers in the united states are going to be either freelancers or independent contractors in the next five years they say mm -hmm. so i decided to go with that trend and and um and start my own thing so that was wow. a very long-winded answer to it. No, that was perfect. You, you just consolidated <laughs> all into nine minutes, which I would never have been able to do. Like you, you had so many different amazing experiences. So thank you for thank you for being here. And I'm just so excited to dive into each one of those pieces. So I remember listening to your channel and you mentioned something about how you didn't become a graphic designer until you were 30, right? Or in your 30s. You, yeah. yeah, so that's amazing that you, you became the VP of design at Old Navy and you hadn't been a graphic designer until your 30s. So so you went to college and then became an art teacher. Is that right? Yes, I got my bachelor's degree and then I went, I was out of school for a couple of years, decided to go back and get my master's so I could teach. Um, uh -huh. And I got out with my master's degree, I think when I was about 26 and I didn't move to New York and start my t-shirt company until I was 30, 31, something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's just amazing, like the, the twists and turns. So um, yeah. So then how did you decide to just, so you said you, you wanted to sell your art. So I guess that was the thought process of why you wanted to start the t-shirt company. Yeah, that, 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 it was like, how am I gonna make money with my artwork? That was the, that was the impetus. I mean, I, I think that, you know, in New York City, there's a lot of street fairs and you go to street fairs and you see people who have little t-shirt companies and they're selling their artwork on t-shirts and they're making money and their artwork is getting out there and it just looked like a lot of fun. Uh -huh. And also at that time, the t-shirt industry was really kind of exploding, right? It was, okay. it had been, it had never been so massively mainstream as it was becoming. And so when I started my company, it was very much that industry was really taking off. And then by the time I got to Old Navy, about four years later, um, 
all of the major retailers had major t-shirt lines and old Navy's t-shirt business. After I was there about three or four years, our t-shirt business, our graphic apparel business was a $700 million a year business. Yeah. And so it was, there was a huge amount of, uh, of responsibility in doing that, but also just this massive amount of product that we did. And it was products for, you know, we called it cradle to grave. So it's essentially, you know, from babies on onesies all uh -huh. the way up to, you know, a t-shirt your dad would wear. Yeah. Um, the big men's, Boys, girls, yeah. Uh -huh. Adults, kids. That's why I'm so excited to have you on the show. Cause I'm like, that is the most perfect experience. <laughs> so, well, let's back up a little. So you, sure. so you decided to start the, um, t-shirt business so were you always entrepreneurial did you always have the itch to start something or you just saw a trend funny, and wanted to take advantage of well, it or? funny the funny thing is i didn't think of myself as being entrepreneurial but when i think back i was always doing something like that like the first time i ever got in trouble from in school i was selling these little rubber toys that you could make with this little cooker thing in the old days you could like take this goo and you'd heat it up and it turns like a creepy crawler thing right so i made tons of those and i would take them to school and sell them put them all in this little cigar box and then lunchtime i'd sell these things and the funny thing is is that my mom tells me this story she said you know you'd come home and you say i need some more of that goop i have to make more of these things and she's like where are all these things going and i said well i'm taking them to school i'm selling them and they're like well, I'm not going to buy you this stuff. And then you get the money from selling them. It's like, you got to learn that you got to pay for the goop stuff. You don't get that free. And I was like, Oh, okay. So that was like, that was, that was my lemonade stand moment when I realized yeah. that, Oh, you have to pay for materials and then you have to sell it for more because you got to pay for your materials. <laughs> so anyway, I was not, and you know, as I grew up, I mowed lawns and I did chores and you know, I was always painting houses and doing stuff for money. So Cool. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you're a kid, you want to, you want to buy stuff. You want a guitar, you want a mini bike, you want a boat constrictor, you want, you know, whatever it is <laughs> that you, you need as a kid. Were you drawn to just like creating things and, and coming up with ideas or were you drawn to the idea of like, Oh, I want to make more money. Or was it like, like, what do you I think was the driving factor? Yeah. I was always making stuff. I mean, okay. I would get, I would get something in my head that I was obsessed with and I would make it like, I remember when I made my, I, I wanted a set of stereo speakers. And so I went to Lumberyard and I bought wood and I went to Radio Shack when Radio Shack existed and I bought speakers and wire and sawed the whole thing, screwed it all together, you know, shellacked it, stained it, made my own stereo speakers. And I did the same thing once with, um, with moccasins. I was like, really into this idea of having like, you know, knee high moccasins with fringe on leather. So went out, <laughs> bought all the leather, bought a pattern, you know, but the leather punch, I made a pair of moccasins just totally from scratch because I just needed to do it. I was doing, I did stuff like that all the time. Nice. So you were, so you were definitely creative. We're, we're getting that vibe. You're a creative person. What yeah. about the art side? What made you decide to go to art school and, and pursue that path? Yeah, I was always I was always uh, a musician, so I've played music my whole life, and I've always painted and drawn my whole life. So when I got into high school, um, I was also acting. So um, I was in a small Shakespearean theater company in my hometown when I was very young, from about the time I was ten until fifteen, um, and so always very artistic in just about every medium. And when I got to, um, I went to boarding school up in Massachusetts and everyone there, when they were leaving boarding school, were going to, you know, they were going to Harvard and Yale and all these places to be a lawyer or a banker or whatever. And I went to art school. So I was like this total black sheep. Um, and I had started to, my teacher at, at boarding school had decided, or had decided that I had some aptitude. So he suggested that I take some life drawing courses during the summertime to build up a portfolio that I could use to get into college. So I did that and I loved it. I mean, I had never drawn from the figure before. And uh, so that's what I did. I, I took a bunch of classes, college level classes while I was high school, developed a portfolio. And then I went on to art school. Wow. Amazing. Christina, do you want to say anything before I go on to the next one? No, no go right ahead. I'm enjoying, you know, okay. kind of <laughs> well, taking it on right now. Yeah. So you I'm telling you guys stories that I've never ever talked about. So I always bring out getting all the dirt. Bring out all the stuff out of people. Okay. So you went to art school, you 
said that there was a you said there was a break or you said a couple of years before you started teaching or you yeah there were there was a two years in between undergraduate school and grad school right after okay. grad school i um i was i got out of grad school and i was selling my work i was a portrait painter so i was uh -huh. making probably half my living selling doing portrait commissions and oh. then um i was also you know i was painting houses i was working in a frame shop i was you know i was doing job jobs and while uh -huh. I was supporting my fine art, essentially, and nice. while I was looking for teaching work, but it took about four years, four or five years to find my very first teaching gig. It was tough back then. Yeah, I I love these kind of stories of hearing like where people come from, because you don't think of it. You don't think like, oh, the VP of design at Old Navy, you know, couldn't get a job out of out of college and was like no having way. to paint houses and do all this stuff for four years. Like that's a long time. Yeah. It's, it's hard when you go through those struggles and you're like, you know, I just went to school. I just paid all this money. What am I going to do with being a fine artist? Like, you know, I'm well, sure I've that people commenting on my YouTube channel all the time. They're like, I'm 24 years old. I feel like I'm too old. I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, you know, I, and I tell them the story. I said, I didn't even get my, I didn't even get my first graphic. Number one, I wasn't even trained in graphic design. Number right. two, I didn't get my first graphic design job until I was 32 years old. And yeah. don't tell me at 30 that you were like, it's too late. Like, forget about it. Yeah. No. I mean, but I'm sure you know, at, when you were in it, it felt like that, right? Like in your 20s, because I remember like in the 20s, it feels like everything has to be right now. Like you feel like you're behind. You feel like you got to learn. Like, I don't know. Yeah. When you're going through, like now I look back and I'm like, why was I so worried at 24? <laughs> yeah. But it, it feels like everything needs to happen right now and everybody's getting ahead of you and, and yeah. all this stuff. Well, it did. Um, and I, and I, I have to say that the transition from being a fine artist to being a commercial artist was not easy. Emotionally, it was not easy. Like I was waiting tables. I was wearing frame shops. I was looking for teaching work. It was frustrating, you know, and I was getting older and I was thinking, you know, I don't want to be waiting tables when I'm 40 years old. And so, and I had, I want, and I want to share this because there's, I talk about a webs of a career. Like I got this, the, the X, um, CEO of Gap Inc., a guy named Paul Pressler. Um, I was doing a project for him and he we were talking once and he said, you know, Phil, a great career is more like a web than it is a ladder. And I thought that that was the greatest comment because he said, you know, it's not always a straight line and every side jog that you take just makes the whole structure stronger. And some of these things are not linear. They don't line up. They're not logical. They don't even make sense while you're going through them, but they will eventually build on each other and will make some aspect of your career stronger. And that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, I had a fine art background. I started a t-shirt company that led to learning the Macintosh that learned to move to my putting my artwork on apparel, you know, my ability to manage people and teach people made me a better manager of creative people. So that took me into creative management into higher levels. My ability to manage money as being a, you know, selling creepy crawlers in school when I was <laughs> six years old and understanding money that helped me advance as well. So all of those little things, they all go together. And so mm -hmm. I try to tell people that it's never too late. It's absolutely never too late to do anything. You know, you can make a career shift at any time if it's, if that's what you want and you have enough passion about it. And sometimes it doesn't even have to make sense. The other thing that I wanted to say, and I talk about this all the time on my channel too, which is people are always saying, find out what your passion is, follow your passion, you know? And I think that that's a, I think passion is a very heavy word. Like passion yeah. carries like 2000 pounds and it's very intimidating word. And so when I'm talking to the young people that I'm coaching and the entrepreneurs that I'm coaching, I tell them, don't try to find out your, if you follow your passion and do your passion, you're going to hate your passion by the time three years in, because you're going to be doing your passion like, and that's, and it loses its allure. I say, follow your curiosity. That's what I tell people. It's like when you're curious about something, pursue it, you know, dig into it, see if it's something you might be interested in. And that's what I did through my career. And it, it served me very well. I love that. And that's such a good way to explain it. Cause I had so much trouble explaining to my friends, like why I quit my job and I was packing boxes of random stuff to ship to Amazon. Cause I couldn't like say that's my passion because it wasn't, but I was like, I needed, to, I just felt like so much like I need to do this and learn how to be an entrepreneur and all that stuff. But it's hard to explain like while you're going through it. So I love that, like chase your curiosity because 
I had a feeling like I needed to do it, but I didn't exactly know how to explain it. And I couldn't really say it was my passion, but <laughs> yeah. so, okay. So you, so it seems like you've had a, a connecting force of you, you do what you, um, you do what, what you're curious about. So you, cause I'm sure like it wasn't that easy an idea to start the t-shirt company, right? Like that wasn't necessarily something no, that people thought would be easy to do. And it wasn't profitable either. I mean, yeah. the, the apparel business is a tough business. A t-shirt business is a tough business. And I learned some very painful lessons in doing that. Um, and one of them was that in order to make money in apparel and t-shirts in particular, you have to do volume. You have to sell a lot of volume because your, your um, profit margins are so small and there's so much competition out there. And, you know, I never really ran the numbers when I was starting my company and I invested a lot of money in a lot of designs that weren't selling. And I didn't test the market when I was trying to find out what was selling um, and ended up with a lot of product that was not moving. And so you have to, you know, my first thing out of the gate was not this rip roaring success. And that was, that also contributed to my going to work for this other guy who had a successful, you know, $5 million t-shirt company because he obviously had it figured out. He had a bunch of, you know, he had a big loft space. He had a bunch of 12 color presses. And I was like, I'm going to go work for this guy and see how it's done. And, I love that. you know, and that's, that's humble too, because sometimes um, people feel like, oh, well I failed. So I guess I'll go back to being a teacher, but you yeah. were like, oh, maybe I'll just go work for somebody who's doing this business that I want to do. Well, and it was also like, oh, I got to pay my rent next month. Like seriously, <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, and, I, yeah, I have to say, you know, part of my curiosity is like making sure that I pay my rent. I mean, back then I, I lived in New York city in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was cool. And it was expensive in comparison to living in Philadelphia. And I have to say a lot of the, some of the decisions I made along the way, especially the move from being a fine artist to being a more commercial artist and in the apparel industry was driven by money. You know, I wanted to make money. I was 31 years old. I didn't have any money in the bank. I'd burned through a lot of my savings doing this t-shirt company. And I knew that I wanted to get a career that was going to get me somewhere. So I was ambitious and I applied myself to, um, to this new endeavor that I did as soon as I decided that I wasn't going to be a fine art painter anymore. Um, and I put my, I put just as much as of my back into it as I did anything else. And I know, think it's am, grit. You have your, your, you have grit where it's like, no matter what happens, you're going to stick to it and you're going to figure it out and you're going to find a way. And, you know, it hasn't been all roses either. That's the other thing I want to say right. is that, you know, I've been laid off because of, you know, the fin financial down, two different financial downturns. I lost mm -hmm. major executive positions. I was laid off after 11 years at Old Navy because of a major restructuring um, where the president and the vice, all the vice presidents were like cleared out when this huge management company came in. Um, and that was a wake up call. So, I mean, it's not like adversity doesn't hit you in the face multiple times in your life. It's just a question of kind of what you choose to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I've had some great positions and, you know, it's been very successful when you look at my LinkedIn profile. But if you were also to look at how many years I've been out of work or how many times I was laid off or how many times I had to move across the country for a job, um, it's a lot. <laughs> and I, and I want people, I want people to know that, you yeah. know, cause it's not, it's not like a cakewalk. You have to, yeah. you have to, you're right. And I'm, what I'm responding to is you're right. It's great. Yeah. It's no, like I can tell because like, I, I'm pretty good at being able to, to read people. And that's one thing that I like, uh, I'm gra I gravitate towards people that have been through a lot. And so I could tell I'm like, he, you not only went through a lot, but you stay positive and you keep learning. And every time you get knocked down, you end up at a higher, <laughs> higher position. So I think that's amazing. So you started your t-shirt company, you worked for the other yeah. guy and then yeah. working with that other guy, is that when Old Navy found you? Uh, I went and worked for a licensing company for about a year and okay. what I was doing, it, it was a, it was one of the worst jobs I've ever had in my life. It was like, we, we were, it was in the garment district in New York city, which is around the most populous and dense part of the business district in New York, um, 34th street. And we were in a windowless studio. It was probably 20 by 40. There were 14 designers in there. My office was an old changing room 
So my office was literally like five feet wide and about eight feet long. And it had mirrors on the entire side of the wall and my desk faced the wall. So it was just, it was, it was dismal. It was, it was horrific. It was like pan dues. That's, that's where I was paying my dues. And then old Navy was starting up and I fall, I wanted to get out of there. So I looked at some um, ads and, um, and saw this ad for old Navy and went and talked to the headhunter. And then, you know, they got me in there and that, that was an amazing, amazing, amazing experience. Because when I started old Navy just had 200 stores. And in the, if anyone knows anything about the history of old Navy, it was started by a guy named Mickey Drexler, who was the CEO. And he had started banana Republic. He took banana Republic from being like this jungle theme store to being <laughs> like one of the highest end mass retailers in the country. He also started old Navy from scratch. I joined about two years after it started and we had about 200 stores and within the first five years of my being there, we reached a billion dollars in sales in a year. We were actually the most successful retail endeavor in history, um, wow. re reaching a billion in sales in under five years. And so it was pretty, it was amazing. And it was a rocket ship. I mean, when I started, there were like 20 employees when, you know, by the time I left, there were thousands you know, it was, wow. it was, it was really, really cool. And the reason that all happened though, is because it was all bankrolled by the gap. Like it, if that had started up as a startup, just self-funded, it would have been very different, but it had the infrastructure of gap and, and um, banana Republic to kind of, you know, support it in terms of, you know, production pipelines and, and HR and executive recruiting and right. all that other stuff. So um, it had a lot of, had a lot of help, but it mm -hmm. still was a just a rocket ride of a trip because we were it, we could just do anything and it would sell. It was like people loved us, um, and you know we just we printed the hell out of t-shirts. You know we did we did like yeah. a lot of t-shirt work. So so you started as a designer there, and then mm -hmm. at some point you were doing the research right to figure out what to trend. Yeah. Yeah. Doing trends and stuff. So talk about that a little bit. How, how is that experience? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the garment industry in uh, old Navy where I was, was, uh, the graphic apparel section of old Navy and there are, it's broken out by divisions. So there's baby and boys and girls, men's women's, and, um, there are, product designers in all those divisions and production designers who do the pattern making and stuff in all those divisions. And so we developed the graphics for product, which was then put on the clothing of all these other divisions. So in a sense, we were an internal agency for the larger company. And the way the graphic, well, the way the fashion industry works in the United States anyway, is that when it's time, you develop a new season every quarter. And so you have to design, sample, assort, and manufacture as a collection within about a four month period of time. And because of that, you know, churn of volume that you have to do, what you do is you go out and you shop for trend. So you go out and shop the world, you go out and shop high end stores, low end stores, um, you know, thrift stores. Um, and so we, you know, representatives from all of those age group divisions and from my graphic team, we would fly to Paris and Milan and Antwerp and Belgium and Tokyo and China and, you know, Australia and LA. Um, we would shop, you know, we would fly into a town and we'd spend three days shopping. Um, you know, we'd go to 25 stores in a day and we would buy what was really cool what we really liked what we thought looked like it was innovative or different or had a new cut or a new fabric or something that was interesting and in terms of graphics we would look for themes we would look for trends of what we saw emerging in the marketplace and so trends would emerge out of you know the higher end retailers so we as old navy which was a more budget kind of almost lower price point than gap retailer, we would go shop, you know, Prada and we would go shop, you know, some of Savile Row in, in, um, in London and look at those stores because the, they would have like five t-shirts, but they would be the coolest, most innovative designs that had hit 
the market. And so we would buy a sample or two. And over these, over the period of the time of these huge shopping trips, we would buy, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 worth of t-shirts. We would have, you know, uh, huge duffel bags full of t-shirts and we would bring them back to the United States and then we'd lay them all out on the floor and we just look at what we had. And as you look at them, you start to, you start to recognize themes. You either recognize themes in imagery or in color or in technique, you know, is it flocked? Is it, you know, is it extruded? Does it have embroidery on it? Um, is it monochromatic? Um, is it being put on a different kind of shirt? You know, is it all sleeveless? Is it all football shirts? Is it all um, crop tops? And we, and, you know, are there a lot of puppies and kitty images, you know, or are there like a lot of like, you know, tattooish kind of rough rock and roll stuff. And you'd start to look for themes and then you would pull those t-shirts together in little groupings and create essentially themed collections for inspiration. And after we did that, we would present that to the, the, you know, the head of, of product development. Um, and then we would go off and we design our own designs, but using those as inspiration. So we weren't copying people, but we were using those themes and those ideas that we had pulled together as inspiration to do our own designs. That's and really, so, really, really yeah. quick, just to stop you right there. So this is something that we all talk about in the community. It's like inspiration versus copying. Yeah. <laughs> so, so go a little bit more in detail about that. Cause what we yeah. do is we, we do most of our research online. Some people right. go to stores. So there's, there's all different people. There's no, everybody does the business a little differently. Some people go to stores. Some people just get ideas from their friends or from walking around the neighborhood and then some people go on websites and they find like the trending t-shirts or t-shirts that are selling the best and they get inspiration from that so it's you know similar getting ideas from different places what's the difference between getting inspiration and copying like in your mind well let me let me just further what you were saying just a little bit because we would mm -hmm. shop stores but we would also go online and there's also trend services that make their their business living by shopping all over the world and taking photographs of, you know, runway shows and theater shows and street signage and, you know, um, retail environments. And then they package those up and sell seats on their websites to companies like Old Navy or Gap or J Crew or whoever. And so there are trend services that also aggregate trend. So we would buy trend services. We have that too. Yeah. Yeah. And so you would, um, you would look at what they did and uh -huh. then you would do your own shopping and develop your own ideas. You would go online. You would also pay attention to what's happening in your own backyard, what your kids are wearing, what you're seeing right. people wear in school. So you're taking in, um, you know, we would go to movies. Like I would take my graphics team. I remember I took them all out to see the first Austin Powers movie because it was like this really cool, like total throwback to the sixties movie and was very unusual for the time. And I was like, this is going to be an awesome inspiration. So I just took my whole team to see it. And we ended up doing like this really cool little seventies hip thing because Austin Powers was a big hit. And That's then so interesting. These thing was like really popular. And so all of the sixties t-shirts we did kind of blew out of the store. So you just have to be really, really conscious of what's happening in popular culture. And you have to have your eyes open and being looking for patterns. And that's what I do. My, you know, anyone who's watching, who is familiar with my YouTube channel, um, chances are they came there because of one of my trend videos. I've had a couple different trend videos that have gone viral. One has got more than a million and a half views. And it, um, I, they're, they're graphic design trends that I have created and developed in exactly the same way that I did it when I was in the apparel industry. So I take pictures out in retail stores. I take pictures of books. I look at what's trending on Amazon. I see what all my designer friends are looking at. I go on Behance. I go on Pinterest. I go on design websites, communication arts. Um, a lot of it is online, but also a, some of it is in physical reality. Look on Instagram, looks what's trending, what people are looking at. And I pulled and I look for themes and I pull together those themes. And then I put, grab that imagery and I put it together in these little collections. And so the trend that I'm reporting on um, is exactly what I was doing in fashion. So I was trained 
in my whole fashion life in order mm-hmm. to how to do that and how to recognize those things. And I'm, and I'm still doing it. I'm still, I'm still putting out that sort of stuff. So now to answer your question about what's copying and what's being inspired, mm-hmm. if you're tracing the thing or you're looking at it and you're <laughs> Xeroxing it or you're scanning it and you're changing an element or two, that's copying. Right. I mean, there's this great quote by Picasso that said, you know, good artists copy and great artists steal. I think that <laughs> great art, what he meant by that is that you take great inspiration and you take it and make it your own and you, and you, you take ownership of it. And so I think that that's very much what it's about. You can, you look for themes, look for trends, look for ideas, but then create your own take on it. And I, I tell people who are develop, doing content marketing to do the same thing. No one comes up, all the content that's out there in the marketplace right now for marketing and entrepreneurship and um, product development, every single one of those articles isn't like somebody's original brain idea, right? Light bulb going off in their head. They've, they've seen an article like it or some topic about it. And they're saying, oh, wow, that topic on Facebook marketing is really interesting. I learned something there, but I have a different opinion on it. And so I'm going to write my take or my opinion on that subject. And that's kind of what being inspired is like. It's like, it's not wrong to look at somebody else's design or wrong to appreciate someone's else's work as long as you don't copy it wholesale. If you take it and are inspired by it and it takes you somewhere creatively and you can build on it and make it yours, that's being inspired. Perfect. Thank you so much for that explanation because that's a big topic because, you know, it's so easy now with the internet to just see like what are the trending shirts and then you see all of a sudden the next day like a hundred more shirts with the same yeah. phrase or the same kind of idea. So people get very frustrated and, and um, you know, people start accusing each other like, oh, well, everybody's stealing and nobody's being original and some of it's true and some of it's yeah. not. and. Um, but I, I really like your explanation. I think all of you guys watching, we got to listen to that again. <laughs> Take all this. Well, here's what I would say. I just did a video on it, actually. Like, what, how do, a, how do, what do you do about cap copycats? I shared it in and, the group. So everybody oh, watched good. it this week. <laughs> good. Yeah. I mean, and you can't, and in the fashion industry, that's exactly the same thing. Because Old Navy was so popular, people were knocking off our designs, like wholesale, like scanning it, knocking it off. Right. And, um, the only thing you can do is keep designing, keep innovating, keep doing new stuff. And if people are treating you like a leader, embrace it and go forward and be the leader, you know, mm-hmm. don't, you know, get all bent out of shape and oh, they're copying my stuff. Wham, wham, wham. Right. It's like design something better and make them want that too. You know, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what it's about. You can't, you know, unless it's like, wholesale theft and you want to get a lawyer involved and like right. they're this company is old navy and they're making 10 zillion dollars off your design yeah sue them get paid that's yeah. absolutely but um and i'm not a lawyer just have to say that <laughs> yeah lawyer. we always have to say that too None yeah, of us that's are. my caveat we're also not a financial advisors <laughs> <laughs> let's okay. get all the uh disclaimers yeah all the disclaimers yeah <laughs> so all right well perfect so you so you did all that. That must have been fascinating. Did you have a great, so much fun traveling the world or, or was it like oh a drag that you never home? <laughs> no, here's the funny thing. And this is, you know, this is somewhat un PC, but I'm kind of an honorary gay man because I was in the fashion industry for so long. But the fashion industry is mostly made up of women and gay men. And I was like one of the few token straight guys in this whole industry, I think. Um, and, but it is, um, it was a lot of fun and I learned, I learned a whole lot. Um, it was incredibly inspiring. And I think that my experience in shopping the globe and I, and I was, I was traveling internationally quarterly look and I've shopped more stores than I ever want to go back to. And, but I learned a lot about retail. I learned a lot about designing collections. I learned about pricing. I learned a lot about you know, visual merchandising. I learned a lot about branding, a lot about packaging, hang tags, in-store signage, all this sort of stuff that is outside of just the product itself. Um, and then also culturally, you know, being exposed to all of those different cultures over such a long period of time informed so much of my uh, design sensibility, I think, and, and my perspective on business and on, on creative professionalism. Absolutely. Yeah. 
let's that's a good segue into branding because i know you're an expert with branding um we have all different levels of people in this group with branding some people um don't have any brand at all and they just put t-shirts up on merch and etsy and, and places like that and then some people have established brands so what do you what kind of advice do you have for people that are just at the beginning stages of starting a brand uh do it right the first time as much as you can afford and what i mean by that is that visual branding is very important very important and so your your brand identity so your logo the name of your business the color palette you use whether you have a pattern or texture that you use whether you have a layout style that you use whether you have a photo style that you use the type of iconography you use um, your tone of voice um, who your customer avatar is what your artwork looks like across all of your social media channels or all of your shop channels or your website consistency in those visual branding elements is is a very, very important. And the reason why it's important is what I talk about on my channel a lot is the three R's, which is being recognized, remembered, and revered. Branding is all about recognition. So when you come across a brand, a company, a person in the, you know, in the physical world in a retail store or online, you you get an impression of them, right? You see the logo, you see the colors, you take this in, you may not even know that you're taking it in, but then you come across them a week later on Facebook, or you come across them two weeks later on Instagram. If, if the colors aren't the same, the logo isn't the same and the, and the name isn't the same and, and the image style isn't the same, people aren't going to understand that they're seeing the same brand, right? They're not making the connection in their head that, oh, I saw them there and now this is them there. Every time you see a brand in a new place and every time you recognize them in a new place, you are building your brand is building brand, what's called brand equity, which is basically like money in the bank in terms of recognition of your brand. So when you, when your brand looks dissimilar across those different platforms, every time someone comes in contact with you, they may not recognize that it's you. And if they don't, you have just missed an opportunity to build brand equity. So the big point of this is, is like what happens with a lot of entrepreneurs is they'll go, oh, I need a website. And then they design the website. They put colors and fonts and a logo up there and they go, oh, I need a, I need a banner for my YouTube channel. And then they do a banner and it looks like something totally different. And then mm -hmm. they need the Facebook banner and they do that. And then after six months later, they're looking across their whole, what I call a brand ecosystem. And they're saying, oh shit, none of this stuff looks the same. Like none of it. <laughs> And because they didn't go into it planfully and they have now wasted six months worth of brand equity building time with their customers because none of their stuff looks the same. And while it is expensive to invest in taking the time and taking a breather to like build those design elements and at least get a palette of things that you're going to use together at the beginning, Fixing it later is 10 times as expensive and it takes 10 times as much time and it's really, really painful to do. So it's almost better to kind of take some time at the beginning and you may, you know, everybody rebrands, Old Navy rebrands, you know, five years later, they like changing their logo, but come out of the gate with as much consistency as you can and, and across as many platforms as you are on in the beginning and try to build things planfully because if you don't and if you do it piecemeal you are going to look scattered and then you're going to have to fix it and so that's what i you know you're hearing me blow my horn because that is that's my horn right that's that's the <laughs> brand design strategy kind of branding um banner that i carry in my life yeah. um and I have this great video, if anyone hasn't watched it, it's called Nine Design Elements Your Brand um, Your Your Brand Needs. And uh, it's a pretty popular one of my videos. If you search it, you'll probably be able to find it. And it's kind of like a, a quick primer in, um, in what those design elements are and what the power of them is. So if you're curious, you yeah, absolutely. And check that out, Merch, merch Community. Yeah, I've been telling everyone to watch your videos because you're one of the few people that's very good with design, but also very good with business. 
a lot of people are like one or the other. So they're either yeah. like this great artist, but they have no idea what they're doing with like a brand or they're very good with marketing and building a brand, but they have no idea what they're doing with designing. So yeah. as that was another reason I was drawn to your channel. Cause I'm like, wow, he's good at all of the pieces. <laughs> Thank you. So, that's very kind that's of good. you to say. Yeah. So, well, Christina, I know there's a lot of um, people in the chat asking questions. Do you want to, Ask him any of those questions? Sure, yes. Um, so the first question we uh, received was, um, please describe the t-shirt and apparel market breakdown based on demographics. Um, they said, do boomers buy as much as millennials? If not, what is the ballpark percentage breakdown? Great question. Uh, that is a really great question. And I'd have to just be honest and say, my market data is about two decades old. So I can, I can talk in terms of sociologically the types of apparel that people wear because that I am up on, but I would say boomers definitely do. They don't, they don't buy as many graphic tees as millennials do. Um, in the middle age groups, the younger they are, and let me talk about it a little bit, kids who are from eight to six to 10 years old, there's something called aspirational buying. So what happens is kids who are eight to 10 years old, they want to look like 12 to 14 year olds, right? So they will, they will try to buy clothing that is older looking or what their, their, their uh, siblings are wearing. So a lot of the times you can design age appropriate wear, um, where you say a six year old girl wants puppy and kitties and stuff like that right? But you can also design apparel for a six or seven year old that looks like apparel for a 12 year old or a 14 year old, because they are deeply desiring to look older. And that happens all the way up through the, the early 20s. And then in the late 20s to 30s and 40s, the reverse happens, meaning the older people start buying things so they can look younger and or more hip. Right. And then there is the smaller contingent of people who are buying age appropriately, but then there's also people who don't care anymore and they just like buy whatever because <laughs> they've just lost their fashion will to live. Right. And so, um, their fashion but, will to live. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the age, you know, in terms of the market and in the t shirt world, I would say, the the largest part of the market is well in the younger ages from you know infant to probably eight years old the apparel that's adorned with graphics is more functional apparel so it's like onesies and it's jackets and you know things like that um when it gets into kind of the tweens and teens then it becomes kind of more fashiony and you're wearing a logo or you're wearing a, an image that you want to project whether it's you know a game or a band or you know whatever it is that you want to communicate. Um, and then it's, and it's more about communication on those kind of like 10 to 18 year old ages. And then when you move into the, you know, the twenties and, and early thirties, it becomes more around, um, there's less message. There's less message that people have to say, like they're not dying to communicate so much outwardly with their chest. They're really looking really more for something that looks nice with their other clothing. It's much more of an ensemble kind of thing. Mm -hmm. In terms of volume of market, I would say the volume of market in t-shirts is definitely the highest between like 14 and 18. That's what I would say. Okay. Great. That's perfect. Okay, um, the next question is, how do you get past uh, shiny object syndrome? And uh, well, everybody, well, God, God help us. God help us people who are in supposed to the internet because especially ADD kind of designers like myself where it's like squirrel and it, it's so easy to get distracted. Um, and I don't know exactly what that question is referring to in terms of like shiny object in terms of like, oh, the new social media platform that everyone's going, oh, you know, Periscope, right? Everyone was like, Periscope, Periscope for like six months. And then who talks about Periscope now? Nobody. Yeah. And so I think what's really important in terms of platform or in terms of, you know, maybe the application that you're using to do the work or the platform you're using to sell your products, start small it to the greatest extent that you can before you grow. I think overarchingly, 
people try to be in too many places. And what they do is they end up being in too many places badly. It's better to show up in a fewer number of places really well than it is to show up someplace badly. And I'll give you an example of that. I didn't even get on, you know, I've been doing, I've been on the internet and, you know, doing social media and content for 10 years, right? I didn't even get on Instagram until like six months ago because I couldn't support it, right? I had a YouTube channel. I had a newsletter. I had big content commitments on those two platforms. And so I showed up on YouTube and I showed up in email. And that's where I put my back into it. And I have a small Facebook presence, small Twitter presence. I'm starting to show up more on Instagram, but I have a, I'm very consciously putting my entire effort into just a couple of different platforms. And I show up on those two platforms really well. And so that's what I would suggest to people is find out where your customers are, find, you know, be, be thoughtful around where your potential customers are hanging out, be there and be there really well and try not to be everywhere. Cause it's, you know, the, it's, it's such a example of, you know, geometric diminishing returns, right? The more platforms you try to be on, the worse it gets. Yeah. That's a really good tip. And you definitely showed up on YouTube. You, <laughs> you, you can, we can tell that you put your effort there cause you've, you've done very well there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, we've got a, one more question. Um, okay, so this one says, uh, Philip, as a veteran having played at a high level and um, also venturing out on your own, uh, what advice would you give people in our community of print-on-demand designers who are mostly focused on merch by Amazon? So in that case, we don't have direct, um, you know, interaction with the customer per se. We don't know who's buying our product. That is, and I'm just going to be honest about it. That's a problem. And I have this saying that says, don't build your brand on borrowed land. And that is why, and I make a, Social media platforms or merchandising platforms, you know, and I'm not going to say Amazon's going away overnight. It's not, but social media platforms can fold, right? And if what happens is you'll build an audience on a platform and then they'll change the algorithm or they'll stop promoting your content or, you know, the whole world will suddenly go to Periscope whatever it is, you know, think about the people who like invested like an incredible amount of time and energy on MySpace. Like, uh -huh. where's that now? And so you have to try to not build your entire brand on borrowed land because it will, you can't, you have to control or at least have direct, be able to have direct contact with your customer. And so that's why at the end of every one of my videos, I ask people to join my newsletter because then they are on my mailing list. I don't spam people. I only send them an email every once every two weeks. But that way I know who they are and I have their email address and they know how to get in touch with me. And so we then have a direct relationship. And when I go live, I send it out to my email list. So my email list knows when I go live first. And if YouTube decided to change its algorithm and shave off half of my followers because, you know, they didn't watch a video for the last three years or something like that, like platforms do crap like that. And they, um, you can do nothing about it. The only people that I control or have any influence over are the people who are on my email list. And so what I would say is, you know, I'm not sure I am not on Merchant Amazon, so I apologize if I don't understand exactly how that works, but you're selling your stuff and Amazon is shipping it out to people and you're not getting their name or their address or their contact information. If there is any, if you have any control over the unboxing experience, meaning like what they get in the box or whether you can put a hang tag on your t-shirt that has some sort of contact information on it. If there's any possible way that you can get those people driven to your website or to your email list or to drop you an email or somehow make direct contact with them so you can start to capture a database of your buyers that's the only way you're not going to be exposed to uh to you know this borrowed land syndrome and it's a tough it's a tough thing to hear i mean and and you know i'm 
I'm not, not guilty of it. I mean, I built a huge community on YouTube and my email list is just a small fraction of the people who subscribe to me on YouTube. But the only people I can communicate with directly are the people who've made that link. And they're the ones who are more, most dedicated to me, right? They're the ones who care about me and what my message is and what I do the most. And so if there's any way for you to foster a deeper connection or get people to make that leap over to your real estate, um, that's what you have to work for. Thank you. Great. Does that answer the question? Yes, that was perfect. Okay. And I know we're getting okay. close to nine. Do you have a couple more minutes for another question or are you going to go? Yeah, yeah, I can go as long as you want. I don't care. Oh, I've awesome. Had coffee. Okay. I'm going to be, I'm going to be staying up late now. Cause I was like drinking coffee before we went live. Yay. So I'm, just, I'm, I'm so excited. excited. I could talk like, I'm, we're learning so much from you. So thank you. Cool. Yes. We've got another question. Um, so, um, this question is in the, uh, European apparel market the non-UK market. Um, in what countries is the English language the most pervasive? And how much of a market share would you say um, does English language have in those areas? Um, for example, in Germany. It, specific percentages of market share, I don't know. But what I would say is English is the, the international language. And people love English language apparel and t-shirts everywhere in the world. I mean, everywhere, you know, and you see it on like memes, right? People walking around, you know, inland China with like some saying that's completely inappropriate on it. Right. And because they don't know what it says, but it's English. Right. Yeah. And so they want to wear it. And so English is, you know, the funny thing is, is when I shopped around the world, almost everywhere I shopped, the t-shirts were in English. So oh. there were very few t-shirts. So we were buying in the, the large global retailers that were not in English. So if, you know, I wouldn't, if you're local and you live in Germany and you want to sell to a German market, great, do German t-shirts, but you can be damn sure that you're buying public is going to end at the border of Germany. You know, if you're doing t-shirts in English, you got the whole world as your oyster. That's yeah. great. Yeah, that's really and so I lost it, audio. Oh, you did? It might be my internet because we're still having that storm. I can hear you. My my ear pods might have gone dead. So maybe I'll switch over. Okay. I don't know what's happening. Can you still hear me, Christina? Yep. Okay. I can hear you. Can you I'm guys hear so, me? Heather? I can hear you. Can you hear me? I'm so happy that the storm wasn't as bad as I thought. I know. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> I don't think he's on mute or anything. Let's see. Okay, I'm back. You're back. Can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry, my ear pods must have gone dead. Uh, okay. Well, we got a couple more questions, and then we'll, we'll let you go. But um, one question is: Do you have advice on effective ways to leverage the massive size of Amazon while building a brand and your own space? I'm not hearing you. Oh. Shoot. That's too bad. Try it again. Okay, I'm back. You can hear me? Yeah. Sorry, it, it cut out. Go ahead. Okay. Um, do you have advice on effective ways to leverage the massive size of Amazon while building a brand in your own space? Oh, we can't hear you now. I know I'm not talking. Can you hear me now? <laughs> yes, I can hear you. <laughs> you can hear me because I'm thinking. I'm surprised you didn't hear like the gears turning in my head. Um, I mean, I think that to a certain extent, the question is the answer to the question, which is you want to leverage the scale and the size of Amazon and build something that's your own simultaneously. I mean, I think it's fantastic. Um, I had only, I could only have dreamed of the type of power and reach that Amazon has and the ease that you can do, um, you know, t-shirt sales now. I mean, print on demand is just alone a mind-bendingly groundbreaking innovative thing. 
And the fact that you can sell a single t-shirt in a single design and you don't have to run 144 of them, which is like what I had to do at the very beginning, is just incredible. The other thing is that's amazing about it is that you can have like a portfolio of 150 designs and just print one. And that way someone can look at this massive portfolio of creative that you have and go, ooh, that's my design. That's the one I want. And you don't have to print 144 of 150 designs, right? And outlay hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's for a creative person, for a designer, it's an absolute dream. It's a dream. Yeah. And, and, and I, yeah, I was same just thing say with like Society6, like and platforms like that, where you can upload creative or patterns or whatever, and they will manufacture it and put it on whatever the item is, a phone, you know, or a, you know, a laptop cover or whatever the thing is. Uh -huh. I mean, that's just, it's just amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. I, well, my thought process is, and we'll see if you think it makes sense or not, but I tend to just uh, get this portfolio of designs going. So I have thousands of designs and put them all up on merch. That way you're making money, you're getting sales and everything. And then you can kind of take your time, like what you were saying of like building a brand, getting more of a cohesive group together and start your own website, like Shopify store or your own Etsy store or something like that. But it doesn't have to necessarily be your main focus right this second. Like, I don't know. I think once you have the designs, you can do a lot of different things with the designs. You can put them on all these other platforms. You can build your own thing. Um, we're actually a lot of a lot of us in this community are starting to put the designs on notebooks on KDP. Mm -hmm. So Kindle mm -hmm. is another Amazon platform, and yeah. we can repurpose our T-shirt designs onto notebooks and planners and things like that. Yeah. So then you get all of KDP, you get all of Amazon, you get all of like you said, Society Six, um, Cafe Press, yeah. Teespring, all of those. And then you can take some of your designs and start to build your own brand as well on Shopify. Okay, so here's something I just thought of while you were talking. And that is that brand differentiation in any crowded category is, in, is the most important thing. If you're in a very crowded category, t-shirts, like that's a crowded category. Everyone and their mother can do it now. The only way to really differentiate differentiate yourself in this sea of print on demand, you know, t-shirt companies in your shop is to have a very clear point of view, have a clear point of view on your creative, what you're good at, what you sell, what you're passionate about. Having a shop that has this huge range of different kinds of imagery, you know, you've got like punk stuff, you have like rock and roll stuff, you have, you know, <laughs> you have trucker stuff, you have, you know, you have grandma stuff. You go to a shop like that and it's like, you don't know what you're going to get when you go to that shop. Like think of the buyer, think of the buyer going, oh, I'm going to, I need to get a t-shirt for my nephew. Right. And you say, if you had a memory of like some t-shirt shop that you've been to, which was like the killer t-shirt shop for 14 year old boys. And you're like, oh my God, this guy has a point of view. It's so strong. Everything he does is for 14 year old boys. When you needed to buy for that kid, you would say, I know what shop I'm going to. Right. And so establishing a point of view on your creative and on your portfolio. So people can self-select, they can say, I'm going to go to that person when I want to buy that thing. But if you sell everything in the kitchen sink, then no one's going to remember you for anything. Right. You're not going to be memorable and, and stand out and be differentiate, be differentiated from the other competitors in your category. You're just going to be the same. Now, the danger in this is that you are, you're putting a stake in the ground. You're having a point of view. You are making a choice, right? You can make a choice around what really sells for you, right? And focus your collection on like only the things that sell. You can focus your collection on the things that you are personally, as a creative person, really passionate about and say, damn, the things that sell. You can, But you have to make a choice. And the clearer and more obvious you can be about what your point of view is, is what's going to make your brand stronger and make you more memorable. Here endeth the lesson. That's my soapbox. <laughs> I just stepped <laughs> off my soapbox. Mic drop. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> it's a, it's a really important one. It is. Yeah. And I, you know, my very first t-shirt company, I suffered from that. I was putting a bunch of fine art that I did that I was very personally in love with on t-shirts. I thought it was great. People hated it. 
People hated my artwork on a shirt. It, it, it looked great on a six by five foot oil painting on the wall. But when I was on a t-shirt, people were like, what the hell is that? And then I would start doing these like New York tourist shirts that were like, you know, kind of punk clip art, you know, not clip art. They were kind of like cut up Xerox, like rock and roll posters. People loved them. And I liked making them. And I stopped putting all my monotypes on shirts because they weren't selling, even though I loved them. I couldn't keep that sacred cow, right? It was a sacred cow to me, but eventually you kind of have to wake up and smell the sales results, right? <laughs> wake up and smell the sales results. I feel like there's so many good quotes in this interview. Yes, there are. Wake up and smell the sales results. I love it. All right, well, this is fantastic. Was there anything that we forgot to ask you or anything that you, any advice that you have for people in print on demand? I'm just excited for you guys. I just think it's amazing. You know, if like, if it had, like I said, if it was 20 years ago and I was just starting off, this is what I would be doing. I would be doing print on demand. I think that it's great because you, you can have your, you can have as much artwork as you want and you can, you know, and you have your own digital stores, you have your own digital presences. You don't have to make massive investments. Um, I just think that it's great. And so I think your audience is very smart. Number one for banding together and, and, and paying attention to what each other are doing and learning from each other. And I think that that's very smart. So, you know, that's one of the things that has skyrocketed my entrepreneurial career in the last five or six years is my involvement in entrepreneurial communities and masterminds. Mm -hmm. um, and also like this interviewing other experts on my YouTube channel or uh, um, so I encourage that. So, you know, the people who are watching this are doing the exact right thing. And if they can go to those meetups that you were mentioning um, that you're going to have around the country, um, go to those, meet people in person, you know, P2P, people, people buy from people, you know, mm -hmm. it's all about relationships and the more net, and I know, and you and I, Helen, were talking about this before we started, which is networking is hard, but the more yeah. networking, I'm a total introvert. You wouldn't think it, especially after I've had a lot of coffee, but <laughs> you, it is the more networking you do, the easier it is. And so just put your hand out and say hi to people and you never know where it's going to take you. It's going to take you on some great web of a career. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. I'm so excited that you said the words, go to the, go to those meetups. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You should. Um, yeah, and you guys can just go right on MerchMoney.com and has all the events listed so you guys can see what's coming up next. Um, awesome. Well, well thank, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. It was great fun. Oh, good. And everybody, please, please, please go subscribe to Philip if you're not already. I think almost yeah. everyone did this week because I posted so many videos. But if you didn't, please uh, go subscribe to his channel. It's linked in the description. Okay, and sign up for his one. newsletter. Yeah, so go yeah. to philipvandusen.com philipvandusen.com slash muse, M-U-S-E. My brand, my newsletter is called Brand Muse. So it's philipvandusen.com slash muse. And you can sign up for my newsletter and you will get as a uh, an opt-in magnet. When you sign up for that newsletter, you'll get a link to download my um, my PDF. It's a mini ebook called Nine Brand Design Elements You Absolutely Positively Need. And that will outline a lot of what I talked about very early on in this show. So you get a little bit of a freebie. Great. Thank you so much. And guys, every, every single person should subscribe because there's very few people that have every piece of the puzzle. So he gives lots of uh, business advice, entrepreneurial advice, design advice. It's the whole, the whole thing. So um, I've learned a lot. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you, you started the YouTube channel. Well, um, thank yeah. you. And thank you, Christina. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate you guys taking your time to, to talk to me today. Yeah, right. it was fantastic. So uh, my my mind is like spinning with ideas now. So <laughs> well, don't be shy. Reach out to me directly. You know that's why we do this: build relationships, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, okay. really appreciate it. And thank you guys all for watching and, and commenting in the chat. Yeah, thanks everybody. All right. Well, everybody have a good night. We'll talk to you uh, next Monday. <laughs>